gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 42, the review segment for Friday, October 3rd, 2014. Today we're reviewing David Fincher's Gone Girl, which is, uh, it was at the New York Film Festival, it opens in theaters today, it's adapted from the very big hit novel by, is it Gillian or Jillian? We still haven't decided how you pronounce Jillian, it. Jillian, actually. It's probably Jillian. Uh, this woman's novel, which you probably saw everyone reading on the subway two summers ago. Um... We haven't decided how we're going to address spoilers for this. I do think this heavily. I think we're going to have to have a spoiler section. section. I think we yes. definitely are. So we'll we'll start simple uh, for the beginning, which is you know probably what you've gleaned from seeing TV ads for this. Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike star as the central couple, <laughs> Nick and Amy Dunn. They move from New York City to Missouri during the financial crisis. They're writers in New York who lose their jobs. Uh, and then on the morning of their fifth anniversary, Amy goes missing. And uh, as the investigation starts, as with, uh, you know, many missing wife cases, it seems like Nick is the suspect. But there's more to the story than it seems. The ad that I've seen on TV many times this evening is, uh, what is it? The the law that says the most obvious answer is the right one. And then the detective played by Kim Dickens says, in my experience, that's not always true. So that's kind of how the twisty part of Gone Girl really gets started. Um, and this is a David Fincher movie, so you can kind of guess it's not going to be your straightforward murder mystery investigation. It is the second movie in a row by David Fincher, as we discussed in Tuesday's episode, that is based on a hit novel with the word girl in the title. Uh, I liked The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, but I think Ground Girl is really exceptional and really its own thing that has little to do with the kind of the airport novel origins we were talking about in Tuesday's episode. I've been thinking about this movie a lot since I saw it last night. It's really stuck with me in this specific way. And I think it's really thoughtful in a way that even the book, which is a well-written thriller, um, but I think it's better than the book in a lot of ways. And I got, I'm really excited about this movie. And David, I know you're really excited about it. And I love giving you a chance to be excited about a movie. So why don't you start? Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> uh, no, I think I think Gone Girl bring on your really... Godard grin and tell us about. <laughs> oh, jeez! <laughs> I think I thought Gone Girl was phenomenal and probably still is. Uh, yeah, the um, the way I, I think I, in my review, I likened it to uh, Brian De Palma remaking Alfred Hitchcock's Mr. and Mrs. Smith in the wettest dream that Nancy Grace has, has ever had. And I think uh, that sounds disgusting. I, I like it does sound movie. disgusting, but I think Gone Girl is at times very disgusting film i think uh it is i was it's interesting because i i think the for i can't remember the last time a movie maybe not since uh certified copy which <coughs> take a shot if you're waiting for me to bring that up is uh <laughs> as a movie had so much fun toying with a, an audience's sympathies uh you know kitty was saying that you know, as so often happens in these stories, people and in real life, of course, people tend to assume that the husband is responsible and the statistics bear that out, um, that he usually, you know, I guess the majority of cases can be the guilty party. But in many what, cases. Right. But what's so interesting about the first half hour of Gone Girl, and I went to this movie completely unfamiliar with the source material, is just how much I couldn't reconcile for, off the bat the crime at the heart of this movie – with Ben Affleck's character. He seemed 
while a bit of a bro and and hardly a perfect guy, and, and we learn, you know, as his sort of character is, is chipped away over the course of uh, really the first hour, hour and a half of the film, he, he seems fundamentally decent and flummoxed by everything that has happened. And of course, we find out uh, as the movie goes on a little lot more about what's ticking, but uh, f- that's really just the launching pad from which Fincher and Flynn toy with with our emotions in in a way that is not just for their own sadistic pleasure but i think really builds into a fascinating uh, and and very adroit portrait of uh you know private how how marriage and really relationships but really really marriage more than anything else um is sort of an act of complicity and uh involves not only as we see in movies like certified copy and the like uh, a bit of performance uh you know amongst the partners themselves but also how it's sort of this collective effort to project an image uh this certain a certain domestic image to the outside world be it the your your neighbors or the the media who can find themselves in this movie you know as i mentioned with the nancy grace uh, name drop sort of find their way into the story in a major way i think a little bit too much has been made about um, well, I, I think that all the claims about it being this satire of uh, the modern media landscape and, and what David Fincher referred to at our screening as tragedy vampirism are accurate. But I think that uh, they've been overemphasized at the expense of all the other very, very uh, smart things that this movie is Which doing. Which is funny but, because I've seen people complain the opposite thing where people say it's people are emphasizing the marriage aspects too much, the relationship, and that that's all surface level detail. Wow, that's which I think is bizarre because both are very much at play. Both this is both about relationships, intimate and relationships exposed by the media. I think. Yeah, um, Yeah. but I think I think that this is a really phenomenal film that it becomes more and more clear as it goes on what about it appealed to David Fincher, Um, and I think gets better as it goes on and gets more lurid and insane, uh, even though it is able to do everything very well. I mean, it works as a compelling thriller when it wants to, but it also works at this sort of uh, excessive, over-the-top, De Palma-esque, you know, soap opera that it becomes. Um, and, it, you know, it's it's very funny. I think it's satire works. It's broader humor works as well. Um, and Rosamund Pike is just so brilliant in her role that I buy everything the movie's selling. And I think, well, I've read that there are some there, there were some issues with the book's ending, um, and I don't. I'm Not really. Part, the book. Yeah. This is very faithful. To well, what the I was going to say is that I, I don't, I don't know uh, the details of how the book ends. I do know people didn't seem to like it so much, um, but I do think that the ending of this film, which I, as Patch has said, uh, is maybe more faithful to the book than people expected. Although maybe in some pivotally minor different well, well, ways not really is uh is the best <laughs> part of the is the best part of the film i think this movie ends at its give the book some peak. credit here because it's not that different it's very anyway similar to- i think it's fantastic uh and uh I, I yeah i think it's it's you know pretty much as good as a as you can expect from a, a major studio of any film this year and you're you you say that as if it's faint praise, but I think you really mean it as you no. Know, I, I that you know uh, it's couched in faint praise, but I think it's this no is a really judge. this is a really really excellent movie. It's not. Uh, I don't think it it has quite the 
this is how we live now gravitas of the social network, which is probably, if push came to shove, still uh, what I think is Fincher's best film. But uh, it, it really is top drawer, which given my perhaps unfair understanding of the quality of the material going into the movie is a really pleasant surprise. Patches. Um, I'm, I'm mostly in agreement with David here. You know, when we talked about the movie briefly earlier in the week, David made a point about calling the movie trash. Um, in, a, in a good way. In a good way. In a, in a way that I understood when we started In a way that, like, dogs like trash, you know? <laughs> <laughs> or, or raccoons like trash? No, sure. they like garbage. Rodents. I don't know. Um, when we talked about trash, we were kind of talking about John Waters' definition of trash in a way um but i don't i don't know if i would uh, now that i've seen the film call it trashy i don't really know why you think this is so trashy and i read your review david on badassdigest.com since i'll i'll give you the shout out as opposed to you having to plug your own review um it's <laughs> as if as if those things are mutually exclusive yeah. <laughs> later. no it'll happen again don't worry uh you, you you your writing is very seductive you have very seductive language i could almost believe that this movie what do you, is trashy what do you say, based on patches? your uh, I, I want you uh now in me then now we're getting trashy oh um no i almost gave it to believe i'm like man maybe this movie was trashy it's it's, I don't I don't agree there. Uh, this movie is not like Hitchcockian to me. It's not high drama. It's very purposefully kind of complacent. Uh, you and I also argued on Twitter earlier this week about the score. Um, you were not a fan of Trent Reznor's music for this when you heard it standalone because it's kind of dull. And it is. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the, the things in this movie are dull. And I think they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be like Lifetime movie-esque um, yeah. and Wait, not trashy. Just trashy. Kind of like artless no, in some way. I, I, but I th- again, I mean, I don't really want to have to relapse that whole conversation no, about I, I don't trashiness. Either. But I think, you know, Lifetime, trashy, these things are all in the center of the same Sure, but I guess what head. I mean, it's not like high drama. It's not melodramatic in a way. When, when you started talking about trashy or mentioning De Palma or Hitchcock. These are kind of like, to me, I conjure up images of, of angular filmmaking, high drama, high impact in a way. Uh, and this is kind of uh, Fincher's least stylized movie, at least of late. Uh, hmm. I'm trying to like go well, through his movies. And stylized it, is a loaded term. because all. Well, I, th- I think it's purposefully drab, so maybe it but, is stylized. but it's yeah. drab? I do, I do, but like in an effective way. I mean, this movie is about well, a mundane couple that kind exactly. of spirals out of control, and the kind of, and the fakeness that they have mm-hmm. to put on for so many people. Uh, and by fakeness, I mean what television looks like, what films are supposed to be like, and then trying to be realistic. So you can understand why the music uh, may sound kind of dull if you listen to it alone, but when it's playing against uh, these scenes where. Nick is trying to put on a smile. He has a very tough time feeling bad about this whole situation. He feels bad, but he's just like, he doesn't understand what's going on, and he keeps accidentally smiling, which uh, Ben Affleck might be the perfect person for that. He makes the best face of 2014 in a movie when he actually starts (laughs) understanding something about the situation that he's in. Uh, So Amy, his wife, every, every anniversary they play this game where... Uh, she's going to hide clues for him to find his presence for their anniversary. And, of course, this happens again now that she's missing, and he figures it out, and Ben Affleck has the best smile when he finds the first clue in cracks. The only thing that could have made it better, you know, the casting better, is if Ben Affleck had been caught in some uh, some you know, sex scandal, cheating on Jennifer Garner or something with a shit-eating grin, just to add that element of uh, life giving way to art. 
<laughs> we could yeah. only, uh, but not that I would wish that. I feel like we always forget Affleck how family. funny Ben Affleck can be. I like, don't. No matter I how many funny movies. He's Affleck. in so many funny movies. The only thing that I don't like about Ben Affleck is that he's giving up, you know, this time to be in fucking a Zack Snyder movie. And not because it's a, not because it's a oh, superhero he's, movie. He's going to buy Jennifer Garner so many houses with that. I, no, I just, it's hard for me to respect people who willingly work with that, with Zack Snyder. But um, <laughs> if, if uh, there's anything about this movie that um, doesn't work work for me and why I don't think it necessarily is a masterpiece is because it's purposefully lethargic at times. I mean, the book is this way too. And again, this is extremely faithful to the book. Jillian Flynn adapted it herself and I think she condensed it in a, yeah, yeah. she condensed it in really interesting ways and, and overlapped and uh, changed the timeline, but it's still like, it's still about having the patience or it feeling excruciating, which I think, Something like the social ne- network will always be inherently more um, enlivened by the, I, the momentum I, of that filmmaking. And this one is about kind of the, the brutal pain of going through this investigation and being tortured, the slow drip torture. I don't know. I, I feel wish like I, I never felt like this movie dr- dragged at all. And I was yeah. really prepared for it, too, because I was dreading this long running time. And I really felt I mean, I kept trying to find a moment to go to the bathroom and I never could because everything was there was so much going on. I mean, if I, I wish that I had seen it twice so I could speak to how it plays once I know what's going on and, and you knew the story going in and I didn't and but I never I never felt for a moment like it was entertaining and something happens halfway through that really ratcheted it up for me and hooked me you know even more than I had right. been in the beginning and the, the well, first half of this movie is largely spent uh vacillating between the present which is Nick's story as he's learning a little bit more about the disappearance of his wife and flashbacks, which are rooted in, uh, I, I always want to call her Nora, like the thin man, like Nick and Nora, but yeah, Amy's Amy. uh, right. perspective, <laughs> um, because they are excerpts of her diary. Uh, and so we get to see their relationship unfold. The, the, the dialogue they share is almost Diablo Cody esque in how. So, so uh, that's a big problem is. for me in this movie. That's one of my only things because. And we'll get into this oh, with but, the spoiler there section. There is a very good reason for this. Yeah, I, well, I, I'm going to hold this for the spoiler yeah, section. But I, I the dialogue in this movie it. for people who are going into it uh, who haven't seen it yet um, is, yeah, like you said, it's very heightened. And I think sometimes that works against the movie for me because everyone has the same tone. And it's very snappy. You can tell Jillian oh, Lynn is an author, not you know, not a seasoned screenwriter, perhaps. And maybe there would be... Different, more difference there. Um, but I will say way. this, I, just to, before I pass it to Katie, is that where this movie really excels and why, yeah, it might be better than the book in some ways is because we get to see their faces. Man, this is this movie is about portraiture. It's about Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike having these incredible reaction shots to all the fucking insanity that's going on in this film. And as you mentioned, Rosamund Pike, too, is just like astounding. Every Every close-up on her face is so telling without having to be expository. I just adored both of their performances. Um, something I want to get into, and I think we should go ahead and jump into spoilers really fast, is uh, I got uh, I, when we were talking about this last time on the subway, I was accused of using the word mise-en-scene a lot lately. I don't think I have, but if I have, <laughs> I apologize to all of you. Um, but I, I don't think about that in particular in a lot of movies, but I feel like Fincher movies in particular, and this one did a really good job of just making the world that it's set in be kind of really subtly there. It's not like this town of Missouri is another character. It's not like we really learn a lot about how the dynamics of the town work, but the blandness of suburban America and then kind of the rot caused by the recession, these two elements really come into play 
so much really organically throughout the, you know, you see all these different signs of people in the town looking for Amy and they're, it's on a KFC and it's on like a tackle shop and they live in this hilariously huge house that they had to, you know, they scuttled away from New York with no money, but they still land in this enormous mansion. That, well, they didn't uh, scuttle away with no money. They scuttled no, they away, away with, with not fund. New like, York money. Yes, exactly. And that's the entire point. Like they get to live in this giant house in Missouri because they left their, you know, New York brownstone. And there's like, there's all this detail going on in there that I feel like makes this an even deeper movie. Like it's a really rich movie about relationships right there on the surface. Like that's the conversation and that's what the plot is about. And that's what, you know, that's what's going on in it. But all this stuff about the recession and about America and New York versus the heartland, like there's all this stuff going on just in the frame without being commented upon that I really, really delighted in. And it kind of continues. But also how that serves the gender politics, I think just like the dynamics of people and when that seems to come back to gender time. Can we go to the, the spoiler section. <laughs> the sound of that talk, gong. I don't think we can talk much about gender without getting All right. spoilers. So, uh, Fair enough. For gong, spoilers for Gone Girl. Although, if you've read the book, I think you're safe to listen to this. I mean, it's a patches. Would you agree? I that, would totally agree. Yeah, I mean, see the movie, but if you are aware of the story from having read the book, you can go ahead and listen. The uh, well, the first thing I want to say was about the dialogue is that you know of course we learn that all the dialogue in the first half of the film uh, is invented by Amy who is not no. a, by any stretch of the imagination. She no, she says that stuff is true. No, well, no, no but, only the things in the past you're referring that's to. What but, I, that's what but, I mean. Like even the flashbacks are, but we're even when Ben Affleck is talking to the cops or talking to his sister. Oh, but see, Doe, I disagree with you there. There's see, like I this think weird that... heightened bounciness. This it's it's well, like it wa- listening a... to a Sorkin play again. I don't think that's accurate. I think that it can be heightened. It, it is a film, but I think that the, uh, I, it struck, I made note of this while I was watching the movie that the, um, the character, his sister played by Carrie Coons feels, and the, the detective who's played by a woman, Kim Dickens, I don't, Kim Dickens and Patrick Fugit, who's sort of her, uh, which of course they're doing sort of a, an inverse of the power structure that we see between Nick and Amy in the first half of the movie. And that, she has all the answers or, uh, you know, is leading him by the tail, uh, are, are very uh, human. They're not, they're, they're not folksy and condescended towards. I will agree um, with that. It's not folksy. They, they are, especially his sister's character, I thought was very sort of rooted in the reality of what was happening. Um, and it, it did feel to me like Katie there will was back me a up here. difference. On uh, the dialogue being... Like overly I, I, heightened at times. And and Diablo Cody is a good a point of reference, as you mentioned, David. I think that like when Go, his uh, sister, played by Carrie Coon, uh, and them are just bantering, it feels like banter as opposed to having a Margo realistic conversation. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think I think there's definitely a level. But Pat just pointed out that I bought into it. Like, I don't mind the dialogue being heightened. I don't like these. I don't mind these people being, you know, people who talk. Having all the right answers. I don't mind that part of it. But I think he did make a good argument that when you get into Amy and when you get to, you know, you see her more. Rosamund Pike, you know, emerges as alive halfway through the movie. And Dave, I want to talk about how that twist affected you. Um, it kind of takes away from her mastermindness. Like the fact that she always has all the answers is deflated a little bit by the fact that other people in the movie also seem to have all the answers. She's, oh. She is by far the smartest person in the movie, and I think the impact is diluted a bit by how good the dialogue is for everybody. Well, she's not perfect, but she does... I, I, you know, I'm not particularly concerned by 
Well, I mean, you're making the claim that it's it's uh, uneven that she's so smart, but I also no, found I don't it to mind, be. No, I don't mind that she's so smart. I think no, she should Everyone be. else should be a little less smart. It's to so the fact that she's such a crazy mastermind. Fine, I and mean, it's so satisfying for me how she owns him by the end of that movie, and how um, the how. But really, the whole movie for me, and one of the the best things I've seen on a movie screen this year. Is and this speaks to how the role that media plays as a conduit in this movie because all of the major revelations, not all, but so many of the major revelations and emotional beats are happening through some sort of mediated uh, form, usually over television. And this scene speaks to that, which is when she's watching Ben Affleck's television interview with Neil Patrick Harris, with Neil Patrick Harris and she's falling in love with her husband again. <laughs> um, and it's so great because you can see exactly what's happening. Uh, and you see in spite of everything like the the difference between it, she's reconciling in that moment the her image of the man that she fell in love with uh with the literal image of the man as he's become and putting on this show for her knowing that she's alive uh and to sort of be like that he man did when he was the man that right had. like that's kind of the fascinating part when you get to the end of it it's that She's basically forcing him at knife point almost to be like, no, act like you are still courting me for the rest of our lives. Otherwise, I will fuck you up like you couldn't believe. And David, that scene, I think, speaks to a lot of what I really like about this and why I think it's an improvement over the book is because you get to see her face. You get to watch her do that. Her eye twitching in that scene. That scares the shit out of me. Or like even the body language where he kind of takes the dessert away from her. It just says all these different things that have to be said out loud in dialogue or in, uh, you know, voiceover in the book. And that's where a director like Fincher can really pay attention to how people operate like that, you know, do 40 takes of it and really get all of that across so elegantly. And Rosamund Pike is so good at expressing all of that stuff with her face. She's really amazing. Mm. Uh, David, talk, talk to me about how this twist hit you since you are one of the, I feel like one of the few people who didn't know what happened halfway. Well, I, I, it's hard to, it's always hard to say like what you remember before you learned it wasn't true, mm -hmm. but I feel like it's such, it, it, you know, there's no body. The movie's two and a half hours long. Rosamund <laughs> Pike is the lead actress in the film. It's, the flashbacks are not substantial enough for me to believe that that is really just the end of her role in the film. Uh, I was not especially surprised to learn that she's alive, but I was very satisfied to learn the details behind uh, the reason why she was alive. The, the, um, the lack of coincidence, the methodical planning, the humor and, and bite with which we see her uh, with her sticky notes on the calendar and the fact that she is – no, I, I didn't really ever feel like she was a criminal mastermind. I mean, the thing is you see in that fil that scene where she, like a total noob, is robbed by the yeah. closest friends that she has. Um, she plans it out like someone who watches Nancy Grace all the time. Uh, and well, so she's, she's even seen reading true crime fiction right. books and watching but movies. I mean, she's, a she's, she's she a still doesn't have like she doesn't know she doesn't have all of the smarts. And you see it with her body language when she's at in the Ozarks at that. Uh, whatever you want to call it, that she doesn't have the street smarts to really play this off in the long run. And I She's think, still you know, performing. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I think that she, um, you know, obviously she could not have intended for everything to work out as it did, but, you know, by so far the best possible outcome for her as far as her master plan. I mean, like she was not going to be surviving for long, um, you know, on, on her own uh, living a completely separate life. 
But I think that the, you know, when when they're talking at the end and they're talking about like, you know, who are we? Who are we? Who? What are we? What are we? Yeah. What are we going to do to each other? I mean, I think that is it's obviously a bleak take on marriage. But as I said before, I think there's an element of complicity in in loving someone when you when you don't when you know the worst about them when you're that love has been tested and uh, you've seen things that are completely at odds with this conception of this person that you had in your head and try so doggedly to maintain um, like that's really where I, my you know Katie you can as someone who's been married for all of what you came back from your honeymoon yeah, like three days ago oh, yeah. uh, you can speak to <laughs> this maybe better than I can but um, you know I, I think that there is like that's when marriage really begins and that's uh, you know, I, I thought that was so fascinating and that's why I thought it was also very in its own trashy you know, per- perverted sort of way, really honest and satisfying. And uh, the irony of this whole dick gate business, which is so oh, silly because whatever, uh, which is so silly because I reported exclusively <laughs> to the world on Friday night as a fact. It's not like I'm going into movies and inventing Ben Affleck's penises. Like I saw it in the movie. Are, exactly, right. Um, like that one time we went to the Schindler's List, but I thought we've all moved on. Uh, but I saw it there. Uh, but that scene, which has now been hijacked to uh, something else entirely, is such a pivotal moment in that complicity when they get into the shower together um, and wash each other, uh, you know, clean or, or, you know, can't quite. I think it's, it's such a, a beautiful moment. They're not washing each other. But no, but they're like in the shower together. It's broadly symbolic of uh, this sort of this sort of rebirth of their relationship in a way. And I think that uh, they're in it for the long haul. I mean, it's hard to. I think this is a marriage that lasts. Yeah. Well, the woman who was sitting next to me, who was, seems slightly insane, asked me at the end of it. Like we walked up. She was like, "Yeah, do you think he kills her?" I was like, "No, I really don't think that's the point of the movie." At I love all. people like that. I know. Um, Patches, you had a lot of thought about thoughts about the gender dynamics of this. I did. Oh, the one right after it. actually, yeah. the one thing I wanted to mention that I thought about David during the movie um, is because David has a hard stance about not really being able to praise the editing in films because you know it could be the director, it could be the editor. No, no, I. I blah, think blah, 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 blah. That's. I think that editing is like the most important part of filmmaking. I know I you do, but you are resistant to praising. I just it. think that no, I think that people. Uh, especially people, this is like the one area where I give a little ground to the idea that it helps to have been, or to have made films to review them. But I think that people who haven't edited something, uh, sometimes lose sight of what editing really means. And I think that like, uh, it's often the the number of cuts and the, uh, number of, of like, like a Christopher Nolan film that's juggling four timelines at once. The most editing is confused for the best editing. That's what I have my gripe okay, with. Okay, maybe, but can we agree that this scene, uh, there's, there's actually two scenes almost back to back. One is about, um, them discovering the diary, the police discover the diary, Nick discovers the shed, and yes. Amy writes the diary. This is not yes. like quick cutting, this is elegance. Um, and then, of course, the Amy montage of getting us into, like, just throwing this idea that she has conceived this entire plot. But elegance is a very good word, by the yeah. way, for describing David Fincher's films as a whole. There's not a, there's like maybe one handheld shot in this whole movie. Not that handheld can't be elegant, but it really is palpable 
uh, how on rails this movie is, how sort of unwavering it's well, a lot of his anyway. films are, but I still would describe the like <sighs> there are, you know, I don't know. I do not like girl with a dragon tattoo and that has some methodical moments, but it doesn't have the elegance of this moment or these two sequences and, and throughout this movie too. I mean, the amount of information and jumping to flashbacks and, and making this all coherent, I think is a real, achievement um, that they found in the editing room. You can tell where things aren't necessarily written through uh, in the script, perhaps. And you can see where it may have deviated and found angles and found shots and told us information. Uh, Katie actually uh, pointed out that scene where she's watching Nick on television. That makes it sound like Nickelodeon on television. Um, She was. and, And then you get Neil Patrick Harris kind of like grabbing the pudding or whatever she's eating out of her hand and this kind of series of shots of going into her face and then hearing his line off screen and then going to him and just like that goes right to the gender dynamic that I'm talking about. Just kind of like continuously people undercutting and being well-meaning but still being ferocious in their misunderstanding of the dynamic of, of men and women. And that I think is told all through editing. I mean, obviously mm. there's a lot of important direction there. But again, finding the timing I think is in the editing room. Yeah, I mean, the, we we haven't really spoken about the unreliability of the narrators in this movie, um, uh, which are very. I mean, I don't. Not that I necessarily am going to expound on it now, but I think you know, just to what Patches was saying, uh, the editing and how those two sequences come together really reflect. Uh, you learn so much about what to listen to and how to how to follow along with this movie during that sequence where you think you're being pointed towards the diary, but in fact you're being pointed somewhere else entirely. Um, I think that it's it's sort of a teachable moment within the film as to how it wants to be seen for the rest of its running time and puts you off kilter in such a way that you – I think it destabilizes your your sympathies in a way that you can't have that very clean uh, good guy, bad guy, hero, villain dichotomy going forward. You have to see um, – you have to see Nick and Amy as sort of – you can make your own judgments, but really the, I, th- I think it's very admirable – uh, even though I would, I guess if you if push came to shove, I would say that Amy sort of wins. But I think that um, yeah, but it wins in the way that like somebody in the evil wins an way, argument like, yeah. in in marriage. But I think that like as far as who's morally superior, oh, I think yeah. that in a relationship it takes two to tango. And uh, you know this is not one of those situations where it's as simple as like oh one person is unfaithful to the other. Well, and, Amy did I mean, murder there, someone, but, so yeah. But uh, <laughs> was was that really such a I mean, what? He, he is like a monster. Yeah, he's definitely a monster. He is like, you know, that's the same way that like you don't judge. Uh, not that I'm advocating murder for something. Are you talking you about like, Desi? But I'm saying that Neil Patrick Harris. Movie, when you say yeah, that? in this movie world, uh, the same way that you don't hold it against the hero of an action movie for killing the bad guy for the rest of his life. No wait, no. Uh, why you know, are you saying that Neil Patrick Harris is? I mean, he's he's venomous. He's skeezy, but is he deserves to be murdered? And yes, I'm talking within the context of this movie. I'm not talking about like my own morals. Because he was trying to control her and basically hold her captive. Yeah, and not just trying. Like, he was a crazy, obsessive person. He's a weirdo, but... I don't slice all the weirdos next. Listen, though. I'm not. I'm not saying he deserved to die. I'm just saying that within the context of this movie, uh, it's 
it's still not, not reasonable. AV is a bad person for killing someone. <laughs> I, and I but, think that this movie wants know, us to feel that complication. Of, it reminded me a lot of Before Midnight, of like the whole dialogue they have about how he conflates being rational with being right. And she, uh, you know, Celine in that film takes on a more emotional dimension, which has uh, elements of hysteria as perceived by Ethan Hawke's character. And they um, are in. Uh, you know, that's they have to reconcile the two, and I think that Amy's character is the whole. I think that the movie does a very, very good job of 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 uh, facilitating conversations like this, where two people can have very different takes that I think are both valid as to which of the characters is the right and the wrong. Well, uh, I don't think and, I don't think anyone should leave this movie feeling like anyone's right, and I think that's what the movie's about, right? I mean, yeah. I walked out yeah. feeling like. Man, we've had this last year or two full of gender politics, hashtag activism, and this movie goes for the throat of that in a way. I mean, it's concentrating on um, TV as its media, but I think it really speaks uh, – well, there's a moment where someone Instagrams a picture of Nick and it goes viral. So we're talking about the internet here and we're talking about people's lives being strewn across it, and I think – the way that we're so quick to call something misogynistic or call or rally all women or not all men and all that kind of crazy hashtag stuff. This just takes it all to task, right? That each person is their own person. And what I love, one of my favorite moments in the movie is when Amy returns after slaying Desi um, and she comes back home and all the police are like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And they're uh, questioning her at the hospital and uh, the woman, policewoman, wants to ask some hard-hitting questions. She knows that Amy's full of shit. And yet all the men police are like, we, we cannot shame the victim. And also, we cannot as, shame the victim. And I'm like, holy crap. As she gets crap. back, people are like – I mean, of course, she, she makes it up to look this way. She makes it look like she uh, has been physically traumatized. But the, immediately everyone's like, oh, like how are you safer? Right. Like she – they're rushing to her rescue where in fact she has just – you know, building it. And, and we, I mean, you can't shame the victim, right? This is really taking a lot of our, what, what we are, what we need to believe as a society, as far as our gender roles and kind of undercutting them in some way. And that's frightening. And it's, it's like enjoyably frightening to see someone kind of go against the grain like that. And mm. to have someone like Gillian Flynn being writing this. It's, and the danger exciting. is that the, the two characters in the relationship, uh, you know, before things went sour or as things were going sour, were sort of gravitating towards these fixed gender roles, uh, because they didn't have anywhere else to go. It was just like the gravity of falling towards them when, when the idea, the ideal of, uh, their perfect marriage in New York began to disintegrate. He became that typical, Man, he may have always been, Playing but those elements were exacerbated by him. Right. And she becomes that typical uh you know, I say typical with with you know four she sets of typical. quotation like she, marks. She talks about how right. she they don't want to be that couple that, is the yeah, thing right. that she keeps saying. Uh but they are. And I th- you know, I think that so much of what happens in the film is a response to like an allergic reaction to being those those roles. But then there's also little things about the gender dynamics. Uh you mentioned Kim Dickens and Patrick Fugit um, and their relationship. But at some point, uh, as the detective, Kim Dickens says that she, you know, she feels bad for Nick or she feels like maybe he's a good guy or there's something not right about this whole situation. And Patrick Fugit's like, oh, because you have the hots for him, right? Mm-hmm. And I that line really struck me. Oh, but the best is when it's a little moment and I 
couldn't swear that exists until I see the movie again, but I'm pretty sure it does. When uh, the Kim, uh, the cop character Kim Dickens is uh, is looking through Ben Affleck's character right at the beginning of the film for his missing wife, right? And this very – he's kind of nonchalant about it at the time because it's only been a few hours. But it's kind of a stressful, anxious situation. And as she walks in front of him, he checks out her ass. Oh, and like, like very, very blatantly, and uh, and just like it's such an interesting kernel to plant that early in the movie for me uh, to sort of I just sort of throw everything and, and on its side and and not make assumptions about these characters and really um, listen to their story in a way that all of the the media that builds around it makes it impossible to. Katie, can I ask you, I mean, am I, is this off limits to ask you as a woman if this is like offensive? Because I can just see this movie and I'm like, I can't, I don't want the think pieces to come. I think this movie raises a lot of interesting questions to kind of punch our our, our structural thoughts on, on gender politics. But it, it wants to raise its questions. It wants to deflate it a little bit. Well, but is that safe? Is that good? Not answer them. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not safe and it's not supposed to be safe. I think... I think it was uh, Vulture's review was saying that like the questions it's raising are interesting and the way that it's kind of playing with our, you know, rape culture and victim culture and the way we treat victims. It's asking these questions in a really interesting way. It's kind of terrible timing for it, given the yes, all women and, you know, the way that we're talking about sexual assault and abuse in a way that we haven't been before. It's not like I shudder to think of the MRA Reddit thread that's going to see this movie and be like, yeah, bitches lie about their rape all the time. Like, and you know that's going to happen. But I don't think that's, I don't think that's the movie's responsibility. I don't think that's the story's responsibility. What the story is doing is creating this female sociopath monster character who is taking advantage of the culture that has grown up that makes it possible to talk. But she saves their marriage. Does she though? Yes, this is a love story. <laughs> I mean, and yeah, yeah, I don't see it that way at all. Well, I but, think, well, of course. On, I mean, on, I, do you really I, buy that? I mean, I yes, understand you're I, all about the morals within the movie. No, and I, I, too, I but think that's, that's completely true. Bizarre. But, but what I wanted to say, I is mean, that, for, but first of all, it's a fact though. Hey, what I said hey, about yes, about their marriage. Men, stop interrupting me. Um, what I wanted to say about that character specifically is that she is. It's not women do this, men do that. It's these particular characters. Yes, are really grappling with these specific gender dynamics, but especially Amy is such a distinctly developed character that I think people generalizing saying Jillian Flynn thinks this about how men and women relate or, you know, David Fincher doesn't think rape is real. Like that's a really false. But the movie departed by the time that that stuff is happening, the movie has departed so far from reality that you cannot, I mean, it's like basing, you know, the way that you live your life off Lord of the Rings. And, you know, it's people to be smarter moviegoers than they usually are though. Yeah, I, I mean, I I feel like David Fincher is the one asking that. Um, I am just sort of echoing his request, but uh, I do I do think that this is a love story, and uh, uh, I do think what I said about um, their marriage when all said and done, and I, think I was right. I, think that's I was whispering because uh, uh, my girlfriend is in the room, and I don't want to spoil the movie for her. Uh, but I think that's the dark conclusion. This this. Uh, movie is drawing is that the way to save your marriage is to uh, force well, each other to pretend. For the I would of kind lives. of disagree. That I don't think it's a love story per se, but I do think it's about the institution of marriage and how it locks us in and how the things that we come to expect from our lives um, make us feel indebted to this 
long-standing tradition of being with another and like that Nick feels like he has to be with her at the end and she feels like she has to be with him. Um, and their craziness is what keeps them together. They're, they're mental, you know, and that's why they're being, they're staying married. I don't think it's a love story. It's a story about marriage working. Uh, I, well, I, I think that it is both. Uh, I think we probably should go get online for inherent vice now, uh, (laughs) and, and wrap this up. Uh, Gone Girl, go see it and argue about it with your friends afterwards. It's- yeah, do, do go see it with uh, with some people. Maybe not on a first date. Maybe not with do your significant not- other. I yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of glad I did not go see it with my husband. I know we will see it eventually, but it's kind of you're gonna get out of there and kind of look at each other and be like, Jesus, who are you? Do what are, what have we done you? to each other? What have we done? And to I'm gonna be like, like here's my dong. Yeah, <laughs> that's the Ben Affleck move. Uh, Gone Girl, go see it. Lightning yes, it was um, inspired by how creeped out we were by the Equalizer last week, which was, uh, a, I guess, based on Chloe Moretz playing a hooker with a heart of gold. Which former child actor had an extreme on-screen sexu- sexualization that you were not ready for? David, what's your pick? Uh, I will go with... Uh, uh, um, and Andrew Choigne, <laughs> I butchered that, uh, so at, at Big Tall Drew, says Anne Hathaway in Brokeback Mountain. Man, did she take off that top with some serious speed. Uh, she did. I'm, I'm going to give my shout out to that because uh, I really did very closely associate Anne Hathaway with uh, two masterpieces I like to call Princess Diaries <laughs> and Princess Diaries royal 2, engagement. a royal engagement. So, we uh, all yeah. know the subtitle to Princess Diaries 2. Yeah, we do. That Starring Chris Pine. I oh, think yeah. actually she um, she was topless in Havoc before Brokeback Mountain. But she was. She was. That. Not that That's I true. know. No, that's true. I can, no, I can tell you. Not that I would that. ever make sure I knew that. Uh, nope. Katie? Uh, I'm going to cheat maybe because this person cheated. Poor Frisco 87 says, does TV count Gabby Hoffman on girls? And I think that is uh, accurate. I really, I really like Gabby Hoffman's return, but uh, role on girls was a little scary. Wait, what does she do on girls? I'm not caught up on that. She plays Adam's sister. Okay. And she shows up and she walks around naked and she uh, sleeps with their downstairs neighbor. But you actually saw her naked before. In I know in a uh, cactus. In, um, yeah, in Brooklyn. In, oh. Yeah, just walking, walking around. around. Uh, she's not. I don't remember that role being very. It's not super sexualized until the very end in uh, Christmas Fairy. No, but she gets ma- she, gets she gets naked in the hostel. Naked. Very naked. She shows she shows everything yep. in that movie. Um, I'm gonna go with <laughs> at AK Dimmy X. Also breaking the rules because this is television, but. This guy just kind of shrugged without actually shrug emoticoning and just said, well, old girl from Family Matters did a straight up porno. <laughs> and I'm like, 
Did she? And then I went on this uh, Wikipedia uh, search. Why and, Wikipedia? Yes, what, Jamie Foxworth from The Family Matters did a porno at some point. I'm like, holy crap. Well, I did not see that, so I was not shocked. But I guess some people were, if you were a big fan of Family Matters. Uh, we all were. The early 90s sitcom. Her name was Jamie Foxworth? That is so weird. Yes, I don't think she's related to Jamie uh, well, Fox Jamie, Jamie or Fox Jeff Foxworth. Name. Wait, Foxworthy? I have no idea. Anyway, she did porn. <laughs> I think any way she did porn is a, is a good way to end any <laughs> episode as ever. Should end from yeah. on. Um, that does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back next week. We'll have survived waiting in line for Inherent Vice for three days and uh, maybe be able to tell you about it. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. You better be telling the truth. If I'm standing in that line, I damn well better get in. Uh, I'm Matt Patches. I write all over the internet and try and put everything on my personal site, mattpatches.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, and that's it. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the editor-at-large of Little White Lies magazine. I also write for the Dissolve Complex, the AV Club, and my Gonga review you can find on Badass Digest. I knew you could plug it again. And you can find me on the internet at uh, David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fairs Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-S-E-H. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I got you, babe I got you, babe I got flowers